0: Welcome to Reroute, this is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to talk to Richard D. Bartlett. Rich is a co-founder of Lumio, a platform for small-scale digital democracy, as well as The Hum, a consultancy for improving the operation of decentralized organizations. He is also the designer behind the micro-solidarity methodology of community building. In this episode, we'll dive into process facilitation for decentralized organizations, methods for developing a sense of belonging, and how to create containers where people can actually change their minds. We'll also run our first reroute collaborative brainstorm for finding non-traditional ways to stay grounded to real needs as an organization. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Richard D. Bartlett. Today, I'm here with Richard D. Bartlett. Welcome Rich, how are you doing today?
1: I'm real good, thanks for having me.
0: Wonderful. Um, well, you know, one of the things I'd love to just start us off with is if you could tell us just a little bit about your story.
1: Sure. Um, <laughs> I have a bad habit. I love to, I love to tell my story. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm from New Zealand, right? So that's the first thing that's, that's why my English is a little bit unfamiliar. Um, but I live in Italy now. I've been traveling for a long time away from home. So my, my English really is hard to place, um, I grew up in a in a sort of middle of nowhere. Well, New Zealand is already a middle of nowhere country, but I grew up in a middle of nowhere town in rural New Zealand on a farm in a fundamentalist Christian community. And that experience of coming up in, you know, in a very uh, kind of intense wraparound church community, uh, it's quite an important component of the story, right? You know, it's, it's like so much of what I've done subsequently is informed by that. Um, I left the church in my early 20s, went to the big city, which is Wellington, you know, like 300,000 people, which was kind of mind-blowing to me uh, at the time. Uh, got an engineering degree and then kind of was thrust out into the world after I graduated in, I don't know, around, well, it was it was basically around the financial crisis of 2008, sometime around then. And of course, it uh, wasn't, wasn't the best time to be a new graduate. And so I kind of had a... A few lost years feeling quite aimless and a bit depressed and cynical and then Occupy Wall Street kicked in in 2011 and that was like that was my like coming alive moment Um not with any any background of activism or anything but I just kind of like randomly stumbled into an Occupy camp and um yeah it, it kind of turned me inside out and and gave me a, a, a sense of a mission and a calling in the world and I've been kind of riding that high ever since. And here we are more than 10 years later. That's fantastic.
0: Um, I'm curious just to hear a little bit more about you were you were saying that, you know, growing up in that um, uh, church community kind of influenced uh, your, your work or kind of the way that you look at things. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. There's so many different facets to it, right? But um, mm-hmm. one that I'm particularly paying attention to at the moment is like, what are the structures for belonging, you know, like Mm, what's the, what's the social physics of belonging? What do we actually need for people to feel belonging? And my my assumption, my hypothesis is that a lot of the, a lot of the problems that we feel in the world are from a receding tide of belonging. You know, it's like, we used to have very like monocultural, religious, um, very local community. And that gave everyone like a shared framework. And sure, some people didn't like it a lot, but the sort of like majority of people right. were held within the shared context. And that gave them a sense of like, I know my place. I and you know, we've got shared values. I know how to make meaning. I know how to contribute. I know how to be good, you know. I heard um, a phrase
0: once that I really liked where it was, you are surrounded by people that you know also care about the same thing that's greater than yourselves.
1: Yeah, great, great definition. And, and, you know, over the last, I don't know, maybe a hundred years, uh, all these different structures for belonging have been kind of evaporating or receding. So religion is definitely, um, not so significant, a role, it doesn't play such a significant role in people's lives anymore. Um, mm-hmm. people are much mm-hmm. more connected to different sources of information, different worldviews, both in terms of like, you know, cities are much more multicultural, but also just the the media narrative landscape we're in is sort of like drawing from so many different sources. Now, Um, you know, the work environment has changed where in the past people would have one job for for their life basically. And it's like, I'm a plumber, that's my job. And now careers Mm. are much more patchwork and precarious. So there's like all these forces that are undermining the structures for belonging that we used to have. And I'm, and then you yeah. throw a pandemic
0: in the mix. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So then you then not just the pandemic, but I mean that's the acceleration of this right. process of socialization is being mediated through digital spaces, which have all kinds of weird incentives mm-hmm. and and affordances. And so there's all of these forces uh, undermining our structures for belonging. And I've just been fascinated in like how do we reconstruct or how do we even come up with new structures that are adapted to our 21st century context where all of those changes are underway and when i look back on the church community there's some aspects of that that i find extremely compelling you know like my my knowledge as a child that if something were to happen in my family there's like mm. 30 other families in the neighborhood that would take me in and treat me like a cousin right um right. that's awesome <laughs> you know that's really yeah. that's that's really significant uh, it's a significant contributor to someone's well being Um, and, and I'm curious, you know, like what was the architecture behind the church? Not just, you know, like I, I kind of gave up on the, um, the religious stories, you know, the stories Mm -hmm. about God Mm -hmm. and and that sort of stuff, but the, the group process that was involved, you know, this idea that there's a, there's a building and everyone in the congregation goes there once a week or twice a week. And there are some people that have special roles. There's elders and deacons and choir and all these things. Um, mm-hmm. There's like small prayer groups and stuff meeting. There's there's all these kind of um, habits and norms and rituals and roles and rules. All this sort of infrastructure that creates a shared context that holds people. And I don't want the uh the the religious part, right?
0: Yeah, um, the
1: metaphysics, yeah. But I want the belonging. And the big the big paradox or the big question that I'm challenged by is like, can you have that belonging without
0: the exactly. really severe conformity? Yeah. Totally. Do you feel like you found any, um, because I I wonder about this too, you know, how much can you take it piecemeal, right? Or how much do, so like A, how much can you take it piecemeal? B, like how uh, intrinsically tied is it to like a centralized kind of uh, dogma? And then, you know, also is that, does that dogma have to be sort of supernatural in nature? (laughs) Uh, So it seems like there's lots of sort of questions about how how much you can atomize or sort of deconstruct that and reconstruct something better. Do you feel like you found any sort of like hints or leads on that?
1: Well, I'm happy to say yes. Good, <laughs> it would be a very good, depressing good, good. conversation if I said no. Yeah, hey, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I found my community of belonging and my experience of it is that it, is, it doesn't require conformity, that it's very pluralistic and supportive of different perspectives and different sets of values and different ways of understanding the world. Um, that it has a kind of minimum viable consensus and, and mm. maximum divergence and freedom, you know? So this is the community called Inspiral, which like I mentioned, Occupy Wall Street Well, straight after Occupy as that movement was kind of, well, disintegrating, uh, I got yep. introduced to the Inspiral community and that was like a really smooth transition to be caught by that community.
0: That's great. And what's kind of, is there like a central unifying focus there or,
1: you know, like a fa- flag that people rally behind or, yeah. Um, no, I was <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of, sort of, so there's, there's, we, sometimes we'd talk about like, it's an ecosystem of purposes, you know, like plural yeah. purposes. Yeah. Nice. Um, the closest thing we have to a mission statement is something that just came up, um, through some kind of like nonlinear informal process, but I think it might even have wound up on the website. Now we say, um, more people working on stuff that matters. That's nice. kind of our yep. rallying, rally and cry. And so it's like basically a couple of hundred people who are mostly like freelancers, social entrepreneurs, kind of um, misfits of different kinds that have come together in a informal mutual aid network. It's a, a community of professional friends maybe one way to think about mm-hmm, it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um supporting each other to do more meaningful work and 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 we don't have an agreement about what's meaningful but just yeah. that you know for yourself what's meaningful and what's meaningless and if it's meaningful to you it's probably worth doing and how can we support you to do that in a real peer-to-peer horizontal way
0: well, i appreciate that that's cool um is this a kind of invite thing or is this something that other folks can get involved in how does that
1: work yeah, that's a really important component. It's invite only, and that, yeah, that yeah. that's a um, that's one of the most powerful governance mechanisms that we have. Mm-hmm. Is that it's very it's a, it's it's an exclusive club, you know. And so, like, um, that means we can we can cultivate a really high degree of trust, and which is the upside. The downside is it's an exclusive club, and it's only for a couple hundred people. So right. um, that kind of fills out the story with what I'm doing now which is what about the experience at Inspiral is uh, replicable? You know, yeah, what exactly. are the design patterns that can, that can go into different contexts, different parts of the world, people with different values and different aims and give them what they need to create the organizing structure? That's, that's, the, big, that's the big puzzle at the moment.
0: That's great. Yeah. I love that idea of kind of, you know, federated systems or, you know, how can you, it's not scaling one organization, right. But, but enabling the replication uh, or inspiration. Yeah. Uh, are there any examples of things that you found there?
1: When I first um, started traveling away from New Zealand in like 2015 um, at first I noticed that the groups that felt most like cousins or siblings of Inspiral, they looked quite different, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, it was hard to find really close siblings. But um, one example is is like in Taiwan, they've got this amazing civic tech community called GovZero. And so it's <laughs> like, um, you know, on a on a government website, you have G-O-V is the uh, right. website name. Um, the GovZero community takes government websites and replaces them with G0V instead of G-O-V. <laughs> and it's all about like an open source, transparent, you know, futuristic version (laughs) of what government could be. And they kind of like, they kind of outcompete the government with like, here's an awesome transparent budget or something like that. I Um, love it. And that's like, you know, thousands of open source technology hackers mostly. Um, Yeah. So it's quite different from Inspiral, but it had the same flavor, the same sort of like co-creation, bottom-up, really high initiative taking, very optimistic, very ambitious, like, but mostly having a good time, you know, mostly just like a, a subculture. Like uh, it, it felt like, well, I, I spent a lot of time with punks, you know, it felt like a, sure. a, a punk subculture, but just for technology. Interesting. Yeah. So just diving in a little bit more, you
0: know, are there kind of, um, you know, if somebody was trying to start, you know, another uh, In um, are there... Uh, you know, processes or, um, you know, structures or gov- governance things or cultural things that you would try to encourage them to do?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I have to be clear, this is this is an art, not a science. And so I'm giving of you course. my opinions, yeah. informed by my experience, but everyone, you know, take it with a grain of salt and do, do what makes sense to you. But what makes sense to me is really to focus on people ahead of projects. Mm. And so that means just taking a long time to build up, Sometimes we call like relational soil, you know, like just, just establishing really excellent relationships, like a real high density of connection, meaning everyone knows everyone and uh, they know a lot about each other, you know, that there's this, these really high bandwidth connections between people Um, and, and get that base very solid before trying to do high stakes collaboration. I mean, sometimes doing a high stakes collaboration is a great way to build those relationships. So it's a bit, it kind of goes both ways, but putting people ahead of projects has been a really strong theme. And mm-hmm. then the other dimension, and um, and this is, this is all under the umbrella of my work that I call micro solidarity, is mm-hmm. developing a real literacy of group size. So understanding the way that groups of different size are good for different things. And this is like a very simple insight, but something that I've observed a lot of people kind of miss, and it makes a huge difference in, in the way that an organization or a community functions is like just really grasping the literacy of group scales. Is there kind
0: of, you know, breaking points that you've noticed, like, you know, after 12 people, you can't do X or you really need 40 people for Y or.
1: Yeah, totally. So like the maximum group that you can, where, where everyone can have a shared mental model of everyone else is five people. As far as we know. <laughs> this is the best this is the best um guess from Robin Dunbar, the anthropologist. Meaning uh, uh, like the cognitive hardware that we've got, if you have five people sitting around a dinner table, you can have one conversation and everyone can kind of keep up with what everyone else is thinking simultaneously. Interesting. But if you introduce a sixth person, the conversation is going to split in two. Or a bunch of people are just going to disengage. Those are kind of your options because we just can't handle it. He even Dunbar even says that. Yeah, um, that makes sense that in Shakespeare's plays, you'll see that they never have more than five people on stage. Even it's often four people speaking on stage about a fifth person. And that's like, so he he had this kind of intuitive understanding of like, this is our cognitive capacity. And so the the, the group of, you know, maybe, and, and the precise numbers, let's not argue about it. Maybe it's six, maybe it's four. But at that very small scale, at that dinner table scale, there's a, a extremely high... Um, efficiency, you know, it's like you can really get a lot of cohesion and shared context with very little coordination overhead. But as soon as you increase the group size, the coordination cost goes up, not just exponentially, but quadratically, you know, because the number Mm -hmm. of relationships is going up so, so rapidly, like Mm -hmm. a group of five people has 10 relationships. A group of 50 people has like more than a thousand. Sure. Right. And so that's more than a thousand relationships where trust can break down, where you can have conflict and divergence and mistrust and all that sort of thing. So the reason it's called micro solidarity is to focus on that micro scale, like to really uh, anchor people in small groups and to say like, this is where the action is. And then, yeah, there are, uh, there are larger scales beyond this. I call that the crew scale. There are, Mm -hmm. there are larger scales to operate. Like, like I said, in spirals, like, has fluctuated between 100 to 300 somewhere in that vague range um i call that the congregation scale which is like a nod to my church background right it's like um the congregation is where people congregate they come together periodically and it's the space where you're gonna meet your crewmates that's the foundation like who's going to be a good fit it doesn't it's not um yeah. It's not like a mathematical recipe, how you find your crewmates. It's a bit like dating, you know, you mm-hmm. need to find the right chemistry and the right values and priorities and all that sort of stuff needs to line up. But that's the baseline is congregation is there for you to find your crewmates. And then the optional extra is when you start to construct like shared resources, commons, you know, like where you have physical infrastructure, legal infrastructure, financial infrastructure, that sort of stuff can start coming online. So that's like, uh, in spiral's case, co-working space um you know big conferences and retreats um big productions of like making books and um running lots of businesses that you know that you can't you can't run a large business with five people right like sometimes you need to, to activate more people well that's what i'm
0: wondering is that you know if you're thinking about this in more of a business context um and you know if you have an alternative structure please tell me right but normally you would have Uh, you know, like a a leader, right. Or like a manager that was kind of part of that group. Uh, And so then would you have like another, um, like, are you always trying to keep your meeting size five people? So then you have like the meeting of the five different crews or, you know, like, how do you do coordination above the kind of crew level?
1: Yeah. I mean, you can, you can have a a useful meeting with more than five people. It's just, you need to use what I call prosthetics, you know, like Mm -hmm. um, you can't rely on just informal uh, sort of our mammal instincts to take over. Mm. You need to have a whiteboard and an agenda right. and a facilitator and a speaking order yep. and, an, you know, like all this stuff that um, yeah, very much. that helps people maintain shared context. Um, so it's not like, yeah, you have to cap every meeting at five people. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the concept is really that um, we try and push as much of the action as possible to the smallest groups. And then mm-hmm. when you need to, you go to the next larger group, um, but kind of by exception. Uh, And what we're trying to do is develop really high. The the thing about the high trust is that it enables high delegation. So you can just say like, oh, that crew over there has got that domain covered. Any decision on that topic, you just go to them and I trust them. I know them well enough that it's like, I don't have to micromanage all of their decisions. So that's what Mm. enables the autonomy and the freedom is that like, you've got this background context of, of knowing each other and trusting each other.
0: That's good. It also uh, struck me that you were talking about your congregation size, and that seemed uh, right around the thing that is colloquially known as Dunbar's number, right? It's a 200, I believe.
1: Yeah, uh, so the, the interesting thing about Dunbar's number, I think, is that he actually talks about Dunbar's numbers. It's plural. Right, so that's it's interesting. Sort of that's
0: the first time I've heard that, yeah.
1: You go from 5 to 15 to 50 to 150 to 500 and on and on and on, and that at mm-hmm. each of those sort of thresholds, It's like you've got a different kind of social organism that's good for different things.
0: That makes sense. I was also struck by, um, I don't have access to this analytics data anymore. It's now uh, Microsoft's, but uh, I don't know if you know, I had a social virtual reality startup for a while, and uh, this would have been the perfect place to... empirically figure out what that uh, first crew number is because it would be uh, quite trivial to just do analytics over, you know, years of sort of person hours in public spaces to see the size of congregated people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, people have, there is a little bit of complaint with some of Dunbar's work because they're like, oh, it's too simplistic or you're missing things. It's like there are a lot of, you know, cultural contextual factors that affect how many relationships people can keep track of and so on. Um, so I don't, uh, for me, it's not important to really nail down precisely the number, but the general principle I think is really crucial and something that is often missed and, and actually causes quite a lot of harm. So for example, like something I've noticed a lot, um, you know, a lot of my peers, are they're into things like burning man and these like transformational festivals, right. And, sure. and this is, this is one of the most visible, um, aspects of the need for belonging is people are finding, like ah, I can go to this festival and I really have this amazing sense of like coming home and finding my tribe and it's like very ecstatic and connecting. Um, And I've seen so many people go to an event like that and have that super peak experience and then maybe it's only a week later or a month later that they're absolutely crushed with this like devastating emotional hangover Mm, when they realize mm. that those people don't actually care about you. And they don't care about you because they don't know you, you know, like you were at a festival with 5,000 people and you spent a week together and it felt like everyone was your friend, but you didn't get a chance to meet most of them. You know, you actually left, you're still strangers. And if you want to have like m- a meaningful sense of solidarity and care, you need to select, you need to find your crew. You need to select a few people and say, Hey, Hey, <laughs> I like you. I want to be your friend. You know, you've actually yeah. got to put some energy into like cultivating those small scale relationships.
0: Well, it's interesting, right? Cause it's, you know, it's, they, they might've cared about you at the festival. And so, you know, it's an interesting question of, you know, how much of it is, you know, are they the kind of people that can care about you or do care about you or do care about you? And then how much of it is just logistically, <laughs> like it's yeah. difficult to organize people together and, you know, yeah. and you usually don't see each other again because just nobody sends the email. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, the, just the, the practical pragmatics of like trying to schedule a meeting or whatever just really gets in the way.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And I mean, even I you see this at Burning Man is that everything is organized around camps, right? It's like you've sure. got to break down that big scale down into smaller and smaller scales and then it becomes manageable.
0: Yeah, very much so. Uh,
1: so I feel like this is a good, um, I
0: don't know, segue because we're already kind of talking about this, but um, I know you've done a lot of work with you know decentralized organizations and are there other sorts of... Um, you know topics that come to mind that you like to share with us, or sort of philosophies that you've seen that that play particularly well with more decentralized organizations.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so many. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe maybe to to um, cut to the chase, there's there's this one dimension I'm talking about: belonging and trust and relationships and like all right. that good cuddly stuff, um, which is not just for the hippies. You know, like it's actually. The foundation of every effective business is just really high quality relationships like this is really now demonstrated with strong science that you know google did this massive study building on amy edmonton's work that the the key performance the key thing that makes a difference for high performing teams is this thing called psychological safety
0: mm, right, and that's yeah. that's
1: basically a factor of trust you know it's like how much how much um connection is there in the room so that I can say things that I know everyone's going to disagree with and not feel threatened that kind of quality that's what mm-hmm. makes the difference in a high performing team more so than any other factor that google could think of so it's, it's not just a hippie thing you know it's a it's, yeah. it's a business thing um yep. and after you've got that baseline of really excellent relationships and a culture of psychological safety then you're in a position to really learn so that's kind of like the, the the second pillar, if you like, of a, of a thriving organization of any kind, but especially decentralized organizations is you need structures for learning. And so mm. the way that I'm familiar with doing that is basically by by having a, um, a really dependable, reliable focus on a rhythm of, okay, maybe the rhythm lasts for a week. It's a sprint or it's an iteration or whatever you call it. And at the start of the week, we commit to a bunch of work. At the end of the week, we stop and review. We have this retrospective and we have this conversation. What did we learn this week? Not just about, not just about the product that we're working on, but the way that we work together, like what was, what, what, which interactions were really enlivening and energizing and, and, and stretched you and made you feel great and which ones were frustrating and felt like a waste of time and like really wasted your energy. Let's hear about that together and choose one thing that we're going to do differently next week. Yeah. And once you've got a group, where it's normal to talk about the little frustrations and the things that are not quite working, and that's ready to like experiment with different ways of working on a regular basis, you get into this rhythm of continuous participatory improvement, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then that organization can just solve any problem that comes its way.
0: Mm. Yeah, I a hundred percent resonate with that because I have found, uh, you know, I talk about this a lot in agile or scrum processes, uh, but those retrospectives being, one of the best places of modeling and establishing that psychological safety, right? Mm -hmm. I think that, and then also, um, blameless postmortems, right? If something goes wrong, (laughs) uh, having a culture of, you know, just owning it, but not kind of taking the blame, so to speak, just kind of describing what happened. Yeah. All right. that's cool. Um, are there other kinds of just, um, I see. So, okay. So having the, the two week rhythms or just kind of like, you know, generally kind of like sprint rhythms, with learning is part of it, uh, are there other kind of aspects? So we've got the, uh, yeah, the belonging, I mean, and then we have kind of, building of psychological safety and sort of, uh, iteration, right?
1: Yeah. I think, um, to really flesh out the, you know, what's unique in a decentralized organization angle, mm-hmm. we need to, at some stage kind of start talking about power dynamics, you know, like sure. the, the, yeah, the, the, what, when someone says a decentralized organization, the thing is, everyone's got a different idea in mind. Um, yep. Some people just mean it's a normal organization but remote. That's not what I have in mind. I'm thinking more that the the authority, the decision making, the power and influence, the status that's decentralized. You know, not that mm-hmm. it's like perfectly flat and everyone's the same and everything's being done by consensus, but that um, there are many centers of influence, there are many centers of decision making, and not one sort of critical point of failure Uh, and it's fluid and dynamic. And these, these, these kind of um, networks are alive and they're moving. Um, Do you think we could consider Burning Man to
0: be uh, an instance of that? Uh, You know, there is kind of that centralized thing, but most of the decision-making is kind of in the individual camps. Um,
1: Well, it's a really good example, I think, because you have, um, you have a particular mode of leadership there, which is like, Mm -hmm. there's a small body that has set up the container and said, like, this is the date that it opens. This is the date that it closes. These are the guiding principles. These are some like ground rules. And now yeah, here are the toilets, you know. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then the rest is handled by highly decentralized decision-making, huge amount of autonomy and a lot of implicit shared norms, you know, like nothing actually right. that's written down. You know, there are the principles, but there's a lot more than mm-hmm. that people know than what's written in the principles. It's in our implicit knowledge. Um, that's a really interesting model and it it resonates quite closely with a lot of the organizations I work with that there is some kind of, um, it's a kind of leadership, which is about building containers rather than Mm. being coercive and directive and, and, and authoritarian, you know?
0: Yeah, very much so. Um, I laugh because uh, uh, myself and producer Nick play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, and I feel like this comes up in that as well. Where you know sometimes as the DM you're kind of leading the the story, so to speak, but a lot of the times you're just trying to create that container for the players to you know have their own explorations.
1: Uh, so one I can see the, that on a small scale. Yeah. One of the ways I've been thinking about it lately is like we really I think it's useful to contrast what is the style of leadership in a decentralized organization from a centralized one. Mm. And for me, one of the contrasts is, yeah, it's about coercion, you know, it's about the Mm. use of force. Mm -hmm. And, um, in a, you know, if you think, if you think about your worst experiences in the workplace, it's because the boss is always telling you what to do and like, doesn't treat you like a human. Um, whereas the most enlightened kind of leadership, I think is at least one of the dimensions of it is about this thing of invitation. It's like you, you show up, you have an idea and you say, hey guys, what do you think about this? You know, I've got mm-hmm. this invitation, I, I wanna put on this event or I've got this proposal or this idea, who wants to join in with that? And technically like at Burning Man, for example, anyone can put up an invitation, right? Anyone can say, right. hey, I wanna host this thing, but not everyone, not every invitation gets accepted. There's like, mm-hmm. there's not an equal, not everyone has equal influence, right? And so mm-hmm. I have this question of like, how do you develop the capacity for making a really compelling invitation? Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that sort of points in the direction of the the kind of leadership skills that I'm interested in cultivating. Interesting. I like that.
0: Um, have you seen the book, uh, turn the ship around? Are you
1: familiar no. with that? No, I didn't know that one.
0: So it's, uh, I appreciated it because, you know, he, he built it for kind of, uh, you know, it wasn't for decentralized organizations, but you know, he might say that, but it's kind of, um, um, what he was trying to encourage was he called a leader leader rather than leader follower uh, kind of organizations inside of, uh, in his case, it was in the military. So he was um, a submarine commander. And um, he got put in charge of the worst performing sh- uh, submarine in the Navy. <laughs> and uh, you know, basically he was like, okay, well, let me see if I can, um, quote unquote, turn the ship around by encouraging this process of trying not to give orders. But the phrase that he always wanted people to say was, I intend to do X. Uh, and then he would give feedback if he felt like it, but that was always what he was trying to elicit from people. Uh, and it feels like that might be relevant here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's some. There's a bunch of really distinctive skills. Some of it is like that. It's like learning how to ask the right questions or, or frame your interventions in a, in a very precise kind of a way. A mm-hmm. lot of it is about just creating shared context so people know what's expected of them um, or what opportunities are available to them. And then a lot of it is encouragement, you know, like just seeing any little sparks of initiative and and blowing on that until the flame takes hold, you know. Um, yeah. These are all qualities that, again, it's like they, they apply to any, any kind of leader that wants to have a really engaged and delighted team, but they are specifically like crucial in a decentralized organization where you don't have a kind of fallback of the boss who's going to call the shots at the end of the day. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think we've touched on this just kind of in the abstract, but
0: I really liked what you said, uh, in our just prior conversation about, um, prioritizing verbs rather
1: than nouns. Can you describe that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah, that is a bit abstract, but, um, in my case, what I'm thinking about mostly is like, I don't, I don't get a lot of joy out of those conversations where we talk about our mission statement and our values, mm. you know, it's like. I understand that sometimes it's necessary in a group to really have a conversation about values. And I don't want to like disrespect people that are doing that, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have, it feels sometimes like we spend hours and hours and hours, just like grooming, grooming the phrases and looking for the perfect word uh, to describe how we see the world or like what we think is the most important values, how we prioritize them. What's the word that we're going to use to describe that. And it's all about these nouns, you know, it's like Uh um, trust and care and honesty and, excellence and all this sort of stuff. Right. Um, They're all these kind of very abstract things. And in my frame of reference, I don't think we need to agree on that stuff. Like mm-hmm. if I say mm-hmm. I want to live in a thriving world, well, that's probably good enough. I don't think we need to pin down exactly what makes it thriving. Um, what's more interesting to me is the verbs. It's the action. It's the like, what are, the, what are we doing about it? Like we need to have some agreement, I think, on how we interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we can kind of let the nouns take care of themselves, you know, like the, the, um, this is why I said at the start that, uh, you know, you asked if Inspiral has a central purpose. I'm like, well, kind of not really Um, (laughs) what we have is a focus on how do we relate to each other? Like what kind of communication do we, do we emphasize? What kind of, how do we interact with each other at events? You know, it's like, we've got a very distinctive culture, just like Burning Man has a distinctive culture. Like there's a different way of being, um, And we don't have a strong alignment on ideology. It's not that everyone sees the world the same way. And we're not, we're not like frightened if someone has a different perspective. It's not really, it's not really seen as a problem. It's like, okay, I've got something to learn from because you see the world differently to me and it's not like a competition to try and flatten the other person's perspective and get them to see your perspective. It's like, no, I just Mm want to exchange different ways of seeing and through that exchange, we'll kind of flesh out more and more detail of, of the picture. Um, yeah, and so that's that's like it's all about methodologies and processes and protocols for encounter rather than this kind of yeah, abstract,, mostly uh, noun-based agreement. So the example in this case is kind of a,
0: uh, I don't know if it's ex- explicit or implicit, but a cultural norm of um, in conversation, sharing views, not trying to argue. Is that, is that one of the examples of the verbs here? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I yeah. think
1: another part of it is like, it's it's related to this concept, um, the doer decides, you know, so like mm-hmm. people call this duocracy. It's like, oh, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's good to get advice from people. It's good to hear people's ideas and opinions. But really, we want the people doing the action to have the, the strongest influence in any decision. And it's really mm-hmm. easy to kind of get that back to front in a decentralized organization and fall back to these like endless consensus building processes where you try <laughs> and get everyone to agree with what yeah. the best possible outcome could be. But no one is actually committed to taking the action necessarily to find out if, if it's even realistic or, you know, that's so easy to do. And so we really try and bias towards action, action, action with, yeah, do a little bit of prudence, you know, check in with people, get a bit of advice, but that's just action.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's great. I love the the duocracy frame. I like a lot. Uh, I've I've found that to be useful inside of community houses where it's the same thing where it's like, yeah, we could argue endlessly about whether we should get patio furniture or what color it should be. But just like if somebody feels like they really want it, go do it. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. the other the other one I like is it's still like this can descend into pettiness, but I almost have never seen it do so, which is like, if somebody's kind of irritated about like the placement of something, it's like, okay, go move it. And then if somebody else really cares about it, they'll move it back and they probably won't because they don't care much, as much as you do. You know what I mean?
1: Well, this uh, is a good, um, um, uh, it's, it, it's kind of points at an important principle of decision-making for me, which is like, it makes sense to me that the, the most high functioning decentralized groups that I know, they have the ability to switch between different decision-making modes. So when hmm. you're talking about like moving furniture, that is a low risk, high reversible decision. You know, you move mm-hmm. the furniture, you don't like it. Nothing bad really happened. You can move it. It's <laughs> like so you can yeah. just reverse that. Uh, and then there are other decisions that have more consequence and that are more permanent. And if you're going to do like a really permanent change, like, oh, we're actually going to knock out these walls and there's no bedroom for you anymore. Sure. <laughs> That's the kind of thing Well, maybe it does make sense to talk about it a bit first, you know? And so... um, it really helps if people have shared mental models about what type of decision-making do we do in what scenario. And mm-hmm. that's often missing in groups. Uh, we call that a decision protocol. You know, it's like a table that says, if this, then that. And mm-hmm. and most groups kind of lack that. And um, I mean, every group has a lot of implicit rules about, you know, Uh, we're going to negotiate about an investment decision and we're going to have no opinion about what kind of snacks you bring to the meeting or something. You know, it's like, we know that informally we use different decision-making methods depending on the context, but very few groups take the trouble to actually formalize some of that stuff and and create a shared expectation of when do you need to get advice? When do you need to get permission? When can you just act under your own initiative? And it makes Mm -hmm. a huge difference to like actually get that stuff clear.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I again, I've, I've seen this in community living as well, where we definitely had to. Uh, at least in one house that I lived in, we ensured that housemate decisions were always made unanimously, but everything else was with different voting mechanisms or duocracy or whatever. So,
1: yeah, great. Yeah, I hear that. Um, and just just to loop that back, one step is like the way to come up with an amazing decision protocol is using those learning loops, right? It's using, it's like, well, uh, let's just try it for a week and then we'll find out. And then at the end of the week, we'll improve it a bit more. You know, like that's yeah. the, this is the magic.
0: Yeah, I hear that. Um, and, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, I know if people try this the first couple of times, they'll be like, all right, this is just too much. You know, we don't need an extra hour meeting for retrospective, but I uh, I will say, at least from my experience, that it was absolutely worth it. So,
1: Hey, I should actually, I should drop a plug at this point. If you go to our website, thehum.org, yep. we've got some resources specifically about like, how do you, if you're in a group and you want to develop a decision protocol, like here's a process that you can use. It's very like step-by-step instructions for that.
0: That's fantastic. we will we'll definitely put a uh, link to that in the show notes. So, um, Do you want to just give a little bit of uh, context on the hum?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. Um, this is all part of the story, right? I've given you a few yeah. random chapters of the story. Um, yeah. Occupy, and Spiral, and then Lumio. So Lumio is yep. a digital tool for decision-making and that was inspired by my experience at Occupy. And
0: mm-hmm. then
1: after like five years of working on that digital platform, I started to really get curious about, yeah, but what else, you know? Like mm-hmm. software is important, but there's so much, there's so many other factors that are that are affecting a group's ability to collaborate. Um, And so my partner Nati Lombardo and I started The Hum, which is like, started I guess as like a research thing and then turned into a training and consulting company supporting decentralized organizations. And so we've just been moving around the world through lots of different contexts and and trying to understand what are the failure points of these decentralized organizations and what are the kind of design patterns that really support them to thrive. And, And now that looks like we've got a online course that we're really proud of that has like really distilled here's all the material like these are the the top 10 reasons that all these groups tend to fail and here's like practical solutions for how to get around those problems like you can do it <laughs> it's doable to that's great um and then yeah a bit of uh coaching advising consulting kind of stuff like that
0: That's great. Uh, And maybe forgive the question, but I'm just curious, you know, for other folks that are trying to start stuff like this, are these nonprofits or for-profits? Did you bootstrap these? How did you kind of bring these into existence?
1: This is, I think, part of the Inspiral essence as well is that um, it's not a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. It's not a for-profit. It's a (laughs) with-profit. So we're, we're working with profit. Like we want to have the independence that is enabled by, being financially sustainable, right? Yep. We don't want to be beholden to government money or some grant funding or something like that. We want to have complete freedom to charter and cause. And so, by that requirement, it makes sense for us to be operating in the marketplace. But we're not for profit. Like right. being for profit is like an animal being for oxygen. You know, there's so much more to life than breathing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Yes. Hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, but you need oxygen to live. So, <laughs> so, so in, in all of these examples. Uh, we've been experimenting with different kinds of business models that allow us the freedom and the spaciousness to do what we think is the most, to do our meaningful work, you know, to make the contribution to the world that that feels the most meaningful to us. Um, But yeah, we don't make decisions trying to maximize the profit. That just seems really boring and unfun to me. (laughs) That makes sense. And then were they bootstrapped or did you get investment for them or how did that work? It's been a huge mixture. I mean, like, Probably, probably Lumio has had the most experimentation. Um, we set up as a worker-owned cooperative, so that's weird. You know, all of yeah, the people that sure. work there yeah. own the thing. Um, we've done a bunch of crowdfunding campaigns, like really small ones, and then some decent, significant size ones. Nice. Um, we've taken on, like, as a co-op, it really makes investment a bit tricky you don't have like traditional equity structures so we've had to right. use these you know what do they call it redeemable preference share and all that you know you start getting lawyers uh, yeah. in and it gets a bit complicated um but we've taken what what people generally gen, generally call social impact investment meaning yep. it's a bit like philanthropy people are supporting a, a social impact but they eventually want their money back so that they can recycle it so it's right. like it's not an investment that's trying to maximize return, but nor is it just a gift that we get to keep, and never return. You know, it's like right, right. it's kind of a it's kind of this hybrid space that we've been experimenting with.
0: That's great. Well, actually, this is a good transition because I know one of the other things that we uh, just touched on. Uh, that I I appreciated uh, you speaking about on a different podcast was this idea of, you know, sometimes these for-profit or with-profit companies are good because they are in a market and that market can give you very valuable (laughs) information about whether the thing that you're providing has certain types of value, right? Uh, And it's a little bit harder to BS a market than it is to BS in kind of other areas. Um, is that, is that kind of consistent with, um, with how you look at that? And I'm just curious for us to maybe talk about this a little bit, uh, before we might try something new on the podcast, which is doing a little bit of a brainstorm around this.
1: Yeah. Um, I think, I think there's some nuance that we can get into. Yep. I th- I, the, the, the instinct for me is like, um, when you are, when you're not tested by the market. So like, um, maybe you work in some like international collaboration that's funded by the EU Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and you've got five years to do your research and like develop your ideas and publish papers and things. Um, That's a context where you're not being tested by the market. You've got other kinds of accountabilities on you, but you don't have this this thing every day of like, okay, who values this? Who is willing to part with their money to access this thing that we're producing? It really cuts you off from a particular kind of feedback and I'm really not a market fundamentalist. I don't think that everything should be market driven, but it is a really, it's one source of information that can be extremely valuable. And and it cuts the difference between like people, it's very easy for people to say they want something, um, but once you actually see the behavior change, then you know that they really wanted it in a, in a deeply committed way. And so like, uh, you know, it's easy to get people to say like, oh, I really care about the environment and I'm gonna sign this petition but until they really consider their lifestyle choices and change them, uh, it, it's like, you don't know if you've actually convinced them or not. And and one of the, the most kind of like crude and obvious behavior changes is they parted with their money. You know, they actually, sure. they actually showed, Hey, this is something that I value. I'm going to take this instead of the other. Um, so I think it's a really valuable test that, yeah, I think it would be interesting to brainstorm and see like, how do we, How do we create more of those kind of hard-nosed tests without all of the shortcomings that the marketplace has?
0: Very much. Um, Yeah, so with that, what we're gonna do is, this is one of my favorite little structures for uh, uh, collaborative brainstorming. I like to use this a lot uh, in a context where one of my, and five people maybe, but usually I I get frustrated with meetings that have more than three people in them. And so uh, in that context, I like to bust this out where it's basically like parallel four-minute brainstorming. So uh, what's going to happen, and we'll, we'll cut the recording, but um, me and Rich are going to take four minutes where we're both going to independently brainstorm some ideas on the prompt of what kind of market tests can we have uh, that aren't these traditional monetary markets. Um, and uh, then we're going to put all our answers into a shared Google Doc and kind of deduplicate them and organize them a little bit and then just talk through any that might be interesting. So... Uh, We'll be back with you in just a minute. All right. Well, we're back after our brainstorm. It was a lot of fun. Uh, And we will give you guys just a little bit of the overview of some of the things that we came up with. Uh, So as a reminder, the prompt was what type of kind of market tests or, um, can we have that aren't traditional monetary systems or monetary markets? Uh, The idea being basically how can we ensure that our organizations are performing well uh, if they're uh, not being subject to existing monetary forces or if we wanna have extra things. And so I'll cover a couple of the topics and then I'll I'll hand it off to Rich. Um, So one of the things that we talked a little bit about or brainstormed about was um, different competitive dynamics, Right, so you can have competitions uh, between um, crews inside of an organization. Um, I also, I don't know if this would make any sense, but we could have, you know, friendly planned competitions between organizations in the same space. I like having, um, you know, friendly relations to other people that would otherwise be competitors. And it's kind of interesting to kind of have races against them.
1: Hey, Um, uh, do do you know, as I understand it from a sort of like evolutionary biology perspective, what makes a competition friendly Mm. is when you are, when you have a sort of a shared sense of you are all part of a bigger thing. You know, the people, uh, the people that you're competing against are, are part of you, that you're not out to destroy them, you know? So like you're in a football league or something where it's like, yeah, you want your team to win, but you also want to have good sportsmanship and you actually care about the other players because you're part of this bigger thing, you know, that you totally. all care about.
0: Yeah. And that's how you have to, uh, avoid the, was old Microsoft had a lot of the <laughs> bad competition between internal teams. So <laughs> they've since fixed that, but yeah, definitely something to keep in mind. Um, and then, um, you know, one of the other themes that came up here was kind of sourcing crowd wisdom, right? So, um, you know, whether that's sourcing goals from, you know, crowds or sort of communities, um, you know, prediction markets or uh, Rich filled in uh, quadratic voting. Uh, do you mind telling us just a little bit about that,
1: Rich? Yeah, this is something that's um, kind of really popular in the in the crypto Web3 space. Mm-hmm. And if the concept is like... Um, We're going to have some kind of funding going on and uh, everyone gets to vote for where the money goes, but many small contributions. So like a little bit of support from many people is worth a lot more than a lot of support from one person. Mm -hmm. So it's really, Mm -hmm. it's a really like a a way of like balancing the voting mechanism so that you reward large communities of support rather than wealthy people.
0: Yeah, definitely. I've seen that they have like really Pretty graphs where, yeah, like the more you donate, it kind of, uh, it, it caps out. You get diminishing returns of how much is yeah. getting matched, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, and then uh, you want to speak about some of the other
1: ones that we brainstormed, Rich? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that that came to mind for me was my experience in Inspiral with what we call co-budgeting. Mm-hmm. And this comes from a, like the old-fashioned way of doing it is you actually have a room. You have diff- people proposing different projects and each project has a bucket in front of them. And you give everyone monopoly money, and they walk around the room hearing about the projects, and they put their monopoly money, you know, in the projects that they they're most convinced by. And this is this you know again the good thing about the market dynamic there is you have to choose. It's this or that. You have to prioritize. It forces your hand. Where when you don't have that market dynamic, you can say, "Oh, I love all of them. All of these ideas are brilliant," and it and totally. it doesn't actually help you prioritize. That makes a lot of sense. And you can, you can also extend that. We haven't done this, but you could easily extend that to have a, a, a matching grant so that like you crowdsource the kind of co-budgeting process and then an institutional funder comes in and doubles every dollar that was put in the bucket, for example. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, no, I think we had some stuff about, Yeah, quantified feedback. I and- mean, that yeah. Yeah, that, that, that gets to the next part about quantification in general. And so, I mean, that's one of the, this is the double-edged sword of the market like the 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 excellent thing about the market is that you you've got very precise quantified feedback you know like did x change y mm-hmm. um but the, <laughs> the dark side of that is that the most important things in the world are priceless you know you don't mm-hmm. if you <laughs> if you come to my house for dinner and we have a lovely evening and then you say here's 30 bucks <laughs> You know, it kind of like spoils the evening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so while the quantified feedback is really crucial and and we can and and, and uh, thankfully we're actually seeing a lot more of this coming online now, this more like quantified self, much more access to big data, um, the ability to like track a lot of stuff and, and say like, this is my goal. I'm going to measure my behavior over the course of the year until I actually make that measurable improvement. Like, that's awesome. So long as that quantitative stuff is always in service of the qualitative, like what Mm -hmm. are our values? What do we actually care about? And like I say, the stuff we care the most about is the hardest to measure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. makes sense. Um, Great. And then I think, you know, we talked a little bit about um, uh, kind of uh, doing retrospectives, right? So I think uh, we we had a few thoughts in from uh, producer Nick. And, you know, I definitely like the idea of having like... um, Kind of rigorous retrospectives right uh not only sort of setting up things in the beginning but making sure that uh we test those at the end um and you know in particular there's another kind of theme that pulled out of about these kind of pre-existing commitments that we're going to check in on right so like have we pre-planned uh metrics do we have uh kind of prizes that we're shooting for or success metrics from kind of third-party organizations um or you know basically just um trying to kind of have these uh, advanced commitments so um thanks for doing that with me uh, rich and nick and um hope to do more of these because you know one of the things that we're trying to do here at reroute is you know hash out some solutions to go into the future so uh any any final thoughts on this rich before i move on
1: well just i noticed in myself my like um the critical voice, you know, it's like brainstorming. You want to just be like, yes, and yes, Ah, and yes, yes, of course, right. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, what about this? And what about that? And what about that? Which is like phase two, right? (laughs) I know.
0: Well, yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's something just to express is, you know, take this all with a grain of salt. This is top of mind brainstorming over four minutes, but you know what, maybe somebody will pull out an idea here and tell us that it's actually a good one. So (laughs) yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, you know, one of the last topics I wanted to hit uh, today was just, I know, you know, one of the things that we both care a lot about is um, uh, figuring out ways of navigating this increased polarization uh, that's been happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in particular, both, you know, how we address this. And I think in particular, like, how do we uh, help people change their minds or feel comfortable changing their minds? I know there's been a few situations in my life where I have. I've uh, been felt called to do so. Um, I think I've said it on the podcast before, but you know, I used to think that global warming wasn't real, um, mm-hmm. and you know, eventually, just realizing that I cared a lot about science, and I just kind of forced myself to read. Um, it was uh, the Royal Society of London put out a pamphlet, and like it took me like a week of like gut wrenching pain to <laughs> be able to tell people that I changed my mind on this because I'd been on the other side for so long, and so. Um, uh, curious to just kind of open up, you know, if you yeah. have any
1: initial thoughts on this and well, you know, we can talk through it. Tell me more about the pain. Like why, what's, yeah. what's hard about saying, oh, I used to think this, but now I think that,
0: well, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot, right. So there's this kind of like, um, you know, especially if you're the kind of person that argues passionately, right. You have brought that energy to a lot of conversations on the other side. Right. Uh-huh. And so in order to say, I have changed my mind about this. You also are in kind of implicitly apologizing for having spread misinformation (laughs) or (laughs) have having been angry at someone uh, for defending something that you now think is right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I see the most extreme example I see of this right now is with people kind of on their dying breaths, denying that COVID is real, you know, as they're literally dying from this virus. Right. And so I think it just points at just how powerful a psychological force it is to, to not go back on something that you fought for very hard. You know,
1: you know, honestly, this goes right back to the side of the conversation from my mm-hmm. perspective. Like it's partly about belonging. It's mm-hmm. like, um, as all of these structures for belonging are being eroded and receding in our lives, we, we latch onto different ways of identifying ourselves. So it's like, Oh, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know, anti-vaxxer or I'm a, Flat earther or, you know, like you just, right you find a few beliefs and you like construct a whole identity around that. And then it's like, and the polarization actually feeds that identity, you know, like you're defined, I say, that's like being, being defined by negative space. It's like, you're defined by what you're against while you're not. Mm. And all of that pressure of people saying, you're not us, you're them <laughs> that actually right. reinforces your sense of identity. And like, you know what your place is. It's like, it actually gives you a, a, an orientation point. And when you confront this thing of like, wait a minute, this belief that I've attached so much value to, it's not actually true. It's an identity crisis. You know, it's just like, well, who am I then? Who are my people? And have I been, oh, wow, I've been offending my people. I've been doing harm. You know, it's like this really, there's a lot of dissonance there. Um, So it's partly about belonging. I think the other dimension is that it's about domination, to be frank. It's Mm. like, it's that, um, I call it discursive fundamentalism. And I'm using that term very precisely because of my, you know, background in a fundamentalist community, Mm -hmm. the the discursive fundamentalism is this growing trend that I notice in the way that we have political conversations in public spaces, especially digital spaces where I'm not seeing your face, Mm -hmm. Um, is this, this attitude, this orientation towards a conversation, which is essentially designed to demonstrate your superiority. So whether that's like mm. a moral or an intellectual superiority to say like, I am right. And by the end of this conversation, you'll either agree that I'm right or else you will concede that you're like morally or intellectually <laughs> inferior to me. <laughs> yeah. And that's just fundamentalism, you know, like that's yeah. just that's just the jihad mentality and mm. it's increasingly common. And, and it really takes a kind of jujitsu move to participate in a polarized dynamic where that's, what's going on and to interrupt that flow and to present an alternative. That's not about just dominating the dominator, you know, right. (laughs) That's the most natural thing is like, Oh, I'm smarter and actually more morally superior than you. I can, I can flip you upside down. It's like, no, no, no. We want to go into a whole different plane. That's not, it's, it's orthogonal. You know, it's not about us or them. It's like we pop through the frame into a different environment altogether. And we start to do the sense-making in a more, generative way not defined by negative space but positive space like brainstorming right like oh right. what don't we know what do you know that i don't know what's the mm-hmm. exchange here what's the things that we never would have thought of if we hadn't met each other and that's uh i mean honestly for me that's almost like a performance art piece or like a a role that i'm trying to play in sure. the public sphere is like there's a way to participate without reinforcing polarization and actually kind of tripping up the polarization every time it, it shows up
0: yeah. And I think that there's ways to still, you know, it's, it's an interesting arc. So I still feel like there is some value in, you know, making sure that people get challenged when they, when they say people that you say things that you might disagree with, but then very quickly afterwards, or, you know, in that, um, I don't know, how do you feel about that? Because sometimes there's definitely uh. folks who say something on the podcast. and I'm like, I feel called to challenge this, you know, yeah. and there is a way
1: that I can more both end it. <laughs> but- I think it's, I think it's very good to punch a Nazi. I've got no no doubts about that. You should punch a Nazi, Um, you know, we've got boundaries. There's a reason. Mm. Yeah. I, I just think about, you know, our uh, granddads and stuff that were, that were literally out there fighting Nazis. We do need to have principles, but when I look at, you know, the drama that's going on on my Twitter at the moment about Jordan Mm. Peterson and Joe Rogan and these kind of characters, it's like, yeah, I can see why people get upset about them, but in the grand scheme of history, like if you really look at what they're doing compared to what other people have done in history, it just doesn't seem to me that the harm that they're involved in is this like astronomical thing that requires us to like actually punch them in the face. You know, it's like a different category. It's like we've lost our sensitivity to scale and, and yeah, that something about the way that the conversation is happening escalates the sense of the threat out of all sorts of proportion.
0: Yeah, I hear it. Um, you know, so you're talking a little bit, you know, when you're talking about in spirit and kind of the um, kind of culture that the organization has, uh, I was reflecting a little bit on some of the communities that I'm in and kind of the norms. And, you know, one of the ones that I, uh, I'm kind of peripherally involved these days, but was much more involved, you know, a few years ago was kind of the rationalist community. Hmm. And one of the uh, norms there is that you get a lot of props and like a lot of social credit for changing your mind. Hmm. Um, and it's one of these things, you know, one of the other cultural norms that's kind of funny is that uh, it's totally acceptable to say, uh, thank you. I'm done with this conversation. <laughs> I'm leaving now. Right. <laughs> so, you know, once you realize that, then you're like, okay, fine. People are just going to say that to me and I won't be upset. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but with the changing your mind, you know, I'm curious cause I know that you've looked at, you know, like how do you instill good culture in organizations and communities? Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on like, how like I don't know how that got into the rationalist community or how that was you know normalized but do you have any thoughts on how that happens
1: yeah totally um we've done some experiments with this it's kind of spicy um, it's fun to experiment with um the way that I think about it is that most of the groups that I've encountered they do have some of this like I said about defining yourself by negative space there is some Mm -hmm. kind of oppositional framing um so like um I mentioned the punk subculture. A lot of that is kind of like about not being the mainstream. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, I've been in in activist groups that are like anti-capitalist or anti-patriarchal or something like that. Sure. Um, And, and that's, you know, that oppositional framing gives you a central point of reference, but it also has some real weak points. And, and I've run processes with one of my co-facilitators before, where we got together a bunch of people who are mostly activists in this case, um, sort of like progressive activists, radical activists, and got them to spend some time just in reflection and then journaling. Like what are some of your doubts and misgivings about what you think the tribe believes, you know, what Mm. are some of the, what are some of the things that people hold as like an unassailable truth that you're actually a little bit uncertain about? Or what are some beliefs that you hold that you would be embarrassed to share because you'd, you'd fear there'd be some kind of negative consequence. And mm. just just journal that for yourself, you know don't tell us, but just just see if there's stuff in there. Um, what are your heresies you know? Yeah and everyone's got a bunch. <laughs> interesting. And then, and then we move from the journaling exercise to, well, let's get, 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 get together in pairs or threes and share a little bit not you don't have to share the contents of your journal but just share what is it like to even admit that you have doubts and heresies mm. and then we moved from that smaller group to the larger group and eventually we had the whole room together with like 40 people talking about well these are all the things all well, these are all the ways that i doubt our orthodoxy and our fundamentalism <laughs> and, it, and it really softened the sense of social pressure that we've all got to think the same thing and it and it created much more space for Divergence of opinion, and it's like, and that was coming after, uh, is that towards the end of a three-day event where people had a chance to like develop a lot of trust and recognition with each other, and say, okay, you're my people,
0: mm-hmm, I care about
1: mm-hmm. you, you care about me, and
0: you're not because a Nazi. we've got that yeah. trust. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're not a Nazi. I yeah. can actually handle the fact that you think a bit differently than me, and it's not a threat. You know,
0: right, right, yeah, that's powerful. I like that. Um, you know, it makes me wonder. I can see that both within organizations and this, this stuff sometimes is hard to, to construct, but I could imagine a tit for tat conversation with a conservative going interesting on that. Hey, let me share <laughs> yeah. something that I think is wrong with our tribe or yeah. that I, I'm a her- yeah. heretic on. What um, about you?
1: Maybe another one that's practical and, and maybe a bit more straightforward to achieve is just really genuinely celebrating dissent. So mm. like if you have a, you're in the community house and you've made a proposal about some kind of change, and everyone likes the proposal apart from one person who's dissenting, yep. Like, it's so difficult to be that person. It's so painful. Mm. And and a practice that we learned at Inspiral was like, if someone is in that posture of dissent, if they're blocking, if they're the veto, someone will go and stand by them, like physically stand by them if, we, if oh, we're together. Interesting. But um, if we're in a digital space, at least like notify them, like I am by your side, I'm with you, I'm here for you, I'm listening to everything you've got to say, uh, I'm not necessarily going to agree with your perspective, but I'm here to make sure that your voice is heard. Mm. And that that really de-escalates the tension um, and and oh, okay. guarantees a sort of like baseline of safety and says we actually care about dissent because it's the dissenting voices that increase the quality of our sense making, right? Yeah. Um, and and if the person feels supported, then they're much less likely to act out and be all like dramatic and much more likely to just say like, this is my piece, this is what I think, you know, they're much more able to participate in a like peaceful process. Um, And yet, and if there's an advocate standing by their side, they're much more likely to be heard.
0: Yeah, actually brings a little tear to my eye, because it takes some courage to do that. So (laughs) I appreciate that um awesome well you know we're getting a little bit towards the end of our time today so are there any other either topics on polarization or other topics that we haven't touched on today that you want to bring up
1: let me just another really short like practical thing on polarization yeah um everyone is in a bubble <laughs> you know mm-hmm. that's just that that's just how it is but it's easier than ever to pop your bubble you just mm-hmm. go on twitter and you <laughs> find someone that triggers you And then you follow them and you follow a bunch of people that follow them and then treat it as a spiritual practice that Mm. like every time you see something that triggers you on Twitter, instead of writing an angry reply, you get out your journal and you say, I'm feeling really intensely triggered. I feel it in my guts. It's in my face. It's a five out of 10. It's a 10 out of 10. This is the story. This is my needs. These are my feelings. This is my values. Like actually journaling that out and, and exposing for yourself, like what is at stake here? Um, gives you much more clarity about your values and actually takes the sting out and means you can show up to that conversation in a constructive way. You don't have to at all. You don't have to participate at all. You can just treat it as a spiritual practice that you do on your own and say, thank you very much without having to engage with them. But like intentionally popping my bubble and exposing myself to many different, many, many different worldviews has been destabilizing, but very rewarding. Mm. It's, 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 it's It's not exactly fun. It's not easy but it has really given me a kind of epistemic humility you know like I don't sure I don't think that I see the world the right way anymore I think Mm -hmm. I see the world in a limited and somewhat unique and interesting way and I'm curious about all the other limited and interesting and and unique ways and how we can patchwork those together into a collective intelligence and Mm -hmm. I honestly I credit a lot of that to just spending a lot of time on Twitter and not not trying to find all the people that agree with me well I definitely love the uh Twitter trigger
0: uh, exercise is a good stoic practice for myself. So <laughs> I may have to try that. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on today, Rich. This has been uh, enlightening and I'm glad we got to hash out some stuff together and uh, wish you much success in helping us shape a uh, decentralized,
1: awesome, organized future. Thanks, Gav. I've had a lot of, a lot of fun with you jamming on this. Um, maybe one last plug is just I mentioned Twitter. I love Twitter. Come and hang out with me on Twitter. I'm Rich Disabels. Um, I don't really like emails and private messages and things, but I do like jamming with people in public. Um, If you're interested in my online courses, gatherings, trainings, blah, 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 you'll find that through my Twitter profile.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. And we'll make sure that we have some links in the show notes. All right. Well, you have a wonderful day and thank you again. Take care, Rich.
1: Thank you.